Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? In the name of progress, modern man has tried to answer those questions without reference to God. But the answers that came back were not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. You are the accidental byproduct of nature. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. Modern man thought that in killing God, he had freed himself from everything that repressed and stifled him. Instead, he discovered that in killing God, he had unwittingly killed himself. For if God does not exist, man's life is ultimately absurd. If God does not exist, then man and the universe are inevitably doomed to death. Like all biological organisms, man must die. His life is but a spark in the infinite darkness, a spark that appears, flickers, and then dies forever. Scientists tell us that the universe is expanding, and as it does so, it grows colder and colder. Eventually, there will be no heat at all. There will be no light. There will be no life. This is not science fiction. If God does not exist, then we are inevitably doomed to extinction. Now, what does all this imply? It means that life itself is absurd. It means that the life we do have is ultimately without meaning, value, or purpose. If each individual person passes out of existence when he dies, what ultimate significance can be assigned to his life? His life might be important relative to certain other events, but if all of the events are ultimately meaningless, what can be the ultimate significance of influencing any of them? Mankind is thus no more ultimately significant than a swarm of mosquitoes, for their end is all the same. This is the horror of modern man. Because he ends in nothing, he ultimately is nothing. But it gets even more distressing, for if life ends at the grave, it makes no ultimate difference whether you live as Joseph Stalin or as a Mother Teresa. If your destiny is ultimately unrelated to your behavior, then you may as well just live as you please. Moral values are either just expressions of personal taste or else the byproducts of biological evolution and social conditioning. Who's to say whose values are right and whose are wrong? Now think of what that means. It means that it is impossible to condemn war, oppression, or crime as evil. To kill someone or to love someone is morally equivalent. Our predicament is that it is impossible to live consistently and happily with such a worldview. The atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell held that moral values are simply expressions of personal taste. And yet Russell admitted that he could not live that way. He therefore found his own worldview, and I quote, incredible. I do not know the solution, he confessed. 
If death stands with open arms at the end of life's trail, then what is the goal of life? Is there no reason for life? If its destiny is a cold death in the recesses of outer space, then the answer is yes, it is pointless. We need to wake up and understand the gravity of the alternatives before us. If God exists, then there is hope for man. But if God does not exist, then all we are left with is despair. Faced with an atheistic worldview, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre realized that life is absurd. In his play, No Exit, he tragically portrayed the life of man as hell. The final words of the play might serve as an atheistic mantra. Well, let's get on with it. Such great stuff, Bill. And I want to get to the second reason for the existence of God. As you say, the complex order in the universe points to an intelligent designer. Explain. Scientists once thought that whatever the initial conditions of the universe might have been, given enough time and a little luck, eventually intelligent life forms like ourselves would evolve. But instead, during the last 50 years or so, scientists have discovered to their surprise that the existence of intelligent life in this universe depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions given in the Big Bang itself. In fact, it appears that the universe has been incredibly fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life from the very moment of its inception. And this fine-tuning is beyond comprehension in its delicacy. To give you an idea of the delicacy of the fine-tuning, let me just give a couple of numbers yeah. to give you a feel for the odds. The number of seconds in the entire history of the universe, all the way back to the Big Bang, is about 10 to the 18th power. 10 to the 18th power seconds in the entire history of the universe. 10 followed by 18 zeros, a huge number. The number of subatomic particles in the entire known universe is said to be around 10 to the 80th power. Now, with those numbers in mind, consider the following. In order for the universe to be life-permitting, the force of gravity and the weak force in the atom have to be fine-tuned to the precision of one part out of 10 to the 100th power. The cosmological constant that governs the accelerating expansion of the universe is fine-tuned to one part out of 10 to the 120th power. Here's a real eye-popper. Roger Penrose of Oxford University has estimated that the odds of the initial low entropy state of the early universe obtaining by chance alone is one chance out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123, a number which is so incomprehensible that to call it astronomical would be a wild understatement. And the examples of fine-tuning are so diverse and so numerous 
that they are unlikely to disappear with any future advance of physics. The fine-tuning is here to stay and requires some sort of explanation of its existence. And in the literature on this subject, there are basically three possible explanations that are put forward. One would be physical necessity, that it's, it's due to the laws of nature. They have to have the values they do. Second would be it's just pure chance alone. The third one would be it's the product of intelligent design. Someone has designed the universe to be life permitting. The problem is that those first two alternative explanations, physical necessity and chance, are just not very plausible. There's nothing about the laws of nature that require these constants and quantities to have the values they do. And the chances are so remote that they cannot be reasonably faced. So that I think the most rational explanation is intelligent design. And a number of scientists have said this as well. For example, Paul Davies, a prominent physicist, has said, through my scientific work, I have come to believe more and more strongly that the physical universe is put together with an ingenuity so astonishing that I cannot accept it merely as a brute fact. And Robert Jastrow, who was the head of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, has said that this is the most powerful evidence for the existence of God ever to come out of science. So we can summarize this first argument as follows. One, if the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause of its beginning. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause of its beginning. We can summarize this second argument as follows. One, the fine tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin, or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. 
This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. Did the universe have a beginning? Or has it existed from eternity past? If it did have a beginning, this raises a question. Did the universe have a creator? In part one, we explored this question scientifically. Now let's look at it philosophically. Aristotle believed the universe was eternal in the past. But Al-Ghazali disagreed. He pointed out that if the universe did not have a beginning, then the number of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. But that's a problem, because the existence of an actually infinite number of past events leads to absurdity. It's metaphysically impossible. Why? The mathematician David Hilbert illustrates the problem by imagining a hotel with an infinite number of rooms, all of which are occupied. There's not a single vacancy. Every room in the infinite hotel is full. Now suppose a new guest shows up and asks for a room. The manager says, sure, no problem, then moves the guest who was in room number one to room number two and the guest who was in room number two to room number three, and so on to infinity. As a result of this shuffling, room number one becomes vacant, and the new guest happily checks in, even though all the rooms were already full, and nobody has checked out. And it gets even more absurd. Suppose an infinity of new guests show up at the front desk. No problem, says the manager. 
Then she moves each person into a room with a number twice that of his own room. So the person who was in room number one moves into room number two. The person who was in two moves to four. The person who was in three moves to six, and so on. Since any number multiplied by two is always an even number, all the odd-numbered rooms become vacant, and the infinity of new guests gratefully check in. And yet, before they arrived, all the rooms were already full. It gets even crazier when the guests start to check out. Suppose all the guests in the odd-numbered rooms check out. In that case, an infinite number of people have left the hotel. And yet, there are no fewer people in the hotel. But suppose instead, all the guests in rooms numbered four and above check out. In that case, only three people are left. And yet exactly the same number of people left the hotel this time as when all the odd-numbered guests checked out. Thus, we have a contradiction. We subtract identical quantities from identical quantities and get different answers. These absurdities show that an actually infinite number of things cannot exist in the real world. Here is a second argument Ghazali offers against a past eternal universe. Suppose that for every one orbit Saturn completes around the Sun, Jupiter completes two. The longer they orbit, the further Saturn falls behind. Now, what if these two planets have always been orbiting the Sun from eternity past? Which has completed the most orbits? Strangely enough, the number of their orbits is exactly the same, infinity. But that seems absurd, for the longer they orbit, the greater the difference becomes. If the universe has always existed, then an infinite series of past events has been formed by adding one event after another. It's like a sequence of dominoes falling one after another until the last domino, today, is reached. The problem is that the final domino could never fall if an infinite number of dominoes had to fall first. So today could never be reached. But obviously, here we are. It's today. So the number of events leading up to today could not possibly be infinite. The infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. What objections might be raised to these arguments? Some people object that, unlike the rooms in Hilbert's hotel, the events of the past don't all exist at the same time. But we can easily tweak the story to get rid of this objection. Suppose the hotel has been under construction from eternity past, one room being added each year. How many rooms would there now be in the hotel? An actual infinite number. So if the past is infinite, that would imply that Hilbert's hotel could exist, which is absurd. Others have objected that an actually infinite number of things do exist, namely numbers and other mathematical entities. However, this objection presupposes that numbers really exist. But this is a highly disputed assumption that most philosophers reject. So if Ghazali's two arguments are right, then the universe is not eternal in the past. It must have a beginning. And we know intuitively that whatever begins to exist requires a cause of its existence. Thus, we are led to conclude that the universe has a cause of its existence. <laughs>
So what caused the universe? Atheist Daniel Dennett says, the universe caused itself. But this is incoherent, because in order to cause itself to come into existence, the universe would have to exist before it existed. The cause of the universe must therefore be outside of the universe, spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and enormously powerful. Much like God. You know, nobody asked me if I wanted to exist. Yeah, one day, boom, there you are. And you think to yourself, why am I here? Well, what do you think? Is there a reason we're here? Do our lives have any real significance? Well, that depends. On what? On whether or not God exists. Wait, hold on. Are you saying that my life has no significance because I don't believe in God? No, not at all. I'm saying that if God doesn't exist, it doesn't matter what you believe. Our lives would have no objective meaning, value or purpose. Many atheists themselves recognize this. If atheism is true, life is absurd. Okay, and why do they think that? To begin with, if God does not exist, then the physical universe is all there is. Which means you and I are just accidental byproducts of nature. Right, so? That means we were not intentionally designed, so there's no purpose for us being here. Whoa. It gets worse. If God does not exist, there is no absolute standard of moral value. You've heard of Richard Dawkins, the atheist. He points out that in a materialistic universe, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. So, you're saying atheists can't be good people? No, I'm not saying that. Many atheists live good lives. What I'm saying is, atheism fails to provide an objective basis for saying any particular action is good or evil. Oh, come on. After millions of years of sociobiological evolution, humans have developed a sense of morality. We all know it's good to feed a hungry child and bad to torture someone for fun. Of course we do. But that's precisely what atheism cannot explain. If there's no God, then what we consider right or wrong is nothing more than an accident of evolution or a human social convention. So what? I'm good with that. Really? Evolution implies survival of the fittest, not morality. And social convention means that racism, intolerance and cruelty are not really wrong. They just happen to be unpopular. Okay, so atheists need to come up with some objective standard for rights and wrongs. How about this? If an action leads to human flourishing, then we can say it's objectively good. And if it doesn't, it's objectively evil. But why think that human flourishing is good? Aren't you being species-centric? Why not refer instead to the flourishing of rats or cabbages? Well, uh... And who gets to decide what contributes to human flourishing? Hitler was convinced killing millions of Jews would promote human flourishing. And Margaret Sanger thought forcing poor people to be sterilized would lead to human flourishing. As Guy Nielsen points out, pure practical reason will not take you to morality. So if atheism is true, there is no legitimate basis for saying that behaving one way 
is worse than behaving any other way. So it really doesn't matter how you live your life. Your day-to-day -day choices are meaningless. That's depressing. So if there's no God, what happens when you die? Well, nothing. You simply cease to exist. Right. So one person lives a kind, generous, thoughtful life. Another lives a horrible, violent, selfish life. It doesn't matter. In both cases, the outcome is the same. Nothingness. So how can their life choices have any objective meaning? Well, it's certainly meaningful if I discover a cure for cancer or save a child's life. I agree completely. But atheism can't explain why. Scientists predict that eventually the whole universe and mankind with it will die out. So everything comes to nothing. That's why atheist Bertrand Russell says we must build our lives on the firm foundation of despair. No thanks. I'd rather live a happy life. You're not alone. Every atheist has to choose between being happy or being consistent. You can tell the whole world you're an atheist, but you can't really live like one. Okay, so you're a Christian. If your God did exist, how would that change anything? If Christianity is true, then each one of us is here for a reason. And life does not end at the grave. And God, He's the absolute standard of goodness. He knows you, He loves you, and He intentionally created you. So your life ultimately does have objective meaning, value and purpose. That means you can live a life that's both happy and consistent. Well, that doesn't prove Christianity's true. Agreed. I'm simply pointing out that for Christians, living a life that is both happy and consistent is possible. For atheists, it's not. So what are you going to choose? Why does mathematics work? Think about it. Mathematical entities like numbers, sets and equations are non-physical and abstract. They can't cause anything. Yet, for some reason, the physical universe operates mathematically. As Galileo put it, the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. Scientists do not use mathematics merely as a convenient way of organizing the data. They believe that mathematical relationships reflect real aspects of the physical world. Science relies on the assumption that we live in an ordered universe that is subject to precise mathematical laws. Thus, the laws of physics are all expressed as mathematical equations. For example, Pythagoras discovered that when a vibrating string is shortened by half, it plays the same note one octave higher. Isaac Newton's observations led to his discovery of the law of gravity, a mathematical relationship expressed as a simple equation that enabled us to enter the space age. Mathematics enabled astronomers to pinpoint the location of a previously undiscovered planet, and James Clerk Maxwell used mathematics to predict the existence of radio waves. Albert Einstein, working with theoretical mathematics developed 50 years earlier, formulated his General Theory of Relativity, a pillar of modern physics. His calculations were later confirmed during a solar eclipse, 
when Arthur Eddington observed light from distant stars bending around the sun. Then, Peter Higgs used mathematical equations to predict the existence of an elementary particle. It took 48 years, billions of dollars, and millions of man-hours for experimental scientists to finally detect the Higgs boson. How do we explain the astonishing applicability of math to the physical world? In 1960, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist and mathematician Eugene Wigner published an article that stunned the scientific community entitled The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. Wigner concluded that the effectiveness of mathematics is a miracle, which we neither understand nor deserve. Why is mathematics so effective? Philosophers who address this question fall into two camps. Naturalists, who believe that all that exists concretely is space-time and its physical contents. They exclude supernatural causes. And theists, who believe in a god who created the universe. Naturalists cannot provide a reasonable explanation for why mathematics applies to the physical world. It's just a happy coincidence. But this is no explanation at all. At most, naturalists can say that it's not surprising that math applies to the world, because the world itself just happens to have a mathematical structure. So, of course, mathematics applies to it. But this explanation is unsatisfactory for two reasons. First, a great deal of mathematics in science cannot be physically realized. For example, imaginary numbers and infinite dimensional spaces. Although these concepts are useful, physical reality cannot possibly have the structure they describe. And second, this answer still doesn't explain why the physical universe has such a stunningly elegant mathematical structure. By contrast, for theists, mathematics works so well in the physical world because God has chosen to create the world according to the plan he had in mind. The first-century Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria offered this analogy. When a king wants to build a city, a trained architect first designs in his mind a plan of all the parts of the city that are to be completed. Then he begins to construct the city out of stones and timber, looking at the model and ensuring that the material objects are built according to the plan. Mathematics and physics work so well together because the same mind that designed the universe on a mathematical model also built the universe on the same mathematical model. All of this adds up to an argument for the existence of God that goes like this. If God does not exist, the applicability of mathematics is just a happy coincidence. But the applicability of mathematics is not just a happy coincidence. Therefore, God exists. Eugene Wigner was right. The effectiveness of mathematics in the physical world is quite literally a miracle, which is best explained by the existence of God. There's a lot of talk about the burden of proof, and I just wanted to point out firstly that you cannot prove the non-existence of a thing, and naturalists accept this, but the problem is uh, when you invoke God as an explanation for that, what you're doing is you're invoking something that is inherently inexplicable, thereby you're not solving the problem, you're not explaining anything, you're confounding the problem, you have more to explain, and I just want to ask you, do you think that invoking God as a hypothesis about uh, natural things or the origin of life or the origin of the universe 
think that's an advancement to knowledge. Um, now, repeat the first part of the question again, because I, I disagreed with what you said there. It is impossible to oh, prove yeah, right. the non-existence. It's impossible to prove something does not exist. That's, that's silly. Of course you can prove something does not exist. Uh, we can prove, for example, that there are no living Tyrannosaurus Rex on the face of the earth. We can prove that there are no Muslims of the United States Senate. Uh, or, as Dr. Shook says, if you can show that something is a self-contradiction, uh, he's in the house. Yeah. Uh, um, you can show that something is self-contradictory. So there are no married bachelors. So it's, it, this is an atheist line that you hear on a popular level all the time, but that sophisticated atheists don't take because it is easy to prove that things don't exist. Now, now the question is, if it is the case that you can't prove that God does not exist, then you shouldn't be a naturalist. You should be some sort of agnostic or something, but you shouldn't say th go around saying things like, nature is all there is. There is nothing beyond matter and energy. There is no supernatural reality. Because those claims exceed what you yourself say you can prove. So you need to make more modest claims about your position that are, are more simply agnostic or something and find a new name rather than naturalism because that's, that isn't something that you can sustain the burden of proof for. Now the last part of your question, assumed that I was presenting God as some sort of an explanatory hypothesis. And if you look at my arguments, they're not like that. These are deductive arguments. Now what that means is that if the premises are true, that the conclusion follows logically and necessarily. Whether you like it or not, whether you think it's explanatory or not, it doesn't matter. All that matters is, are the premises more plausibly true than not? Because if they are, then the conclusion is logically unavoidable. And so yes, I think they definitely represent an increase in knowledge. This is an example of deductive logical reasoning. And it, it can't be impugned by saying that it's not uh, some sort of uh, explanatory inference to the best explanation or something of that sort.